On November 29, 2016, West Coast Children's Clinic hosted a panel on child sex trafficking. We were interested in exploring the ways gender, race, and power impact the child sex trade. This is the fourth of five podcasts from a recording of that evening's panel. Thank you so much for listening. We just elected a president who's bragged about sexually assaulting women and dismissed it as locker room talk. We have popular music with lyrics like, my little sister's birthday, she'll remember me for a gift I had 10 of my boys take her virginity. Malika, when you wrote about Grand Theft Auto V, you commented that violence against women and our acceptance of that violence is why GTA V's assault on women can be framed as unapologetically entertaining. The abuse played out in the game is not really outside of our cultural norms. How is this magnified for girls of color and the notion of injustice squared? <laughs> um, so what, what's most striking to me is um, who is allowed to be normalized and what is normalized and not, right? So, yes, we've elected a man who has perpetrated sexual assault to the highest position in this country um, and, and the highest position uh, in the world. Um, and, and there's a certain kind of normalization that's played out around that, right? Um, what strikes me is that only a white male could have gotten away with that. Um, and um, that the ways in which we see the sexual assault and violence committed against women and girls of color also is allowed to be normalized, right? Another way in which these norms get protected. Um, and, and so I, I think I'm often left with this sense of who is protected in their perpetration of abuse and who isn't protected when they are abused. And again and again, it comes to this issue that I think we see most um, dangerously and most vividly around how our girls who are disproportionately black and brown who are subject to commercial rape are not perceived as abused. And I think we also have to recognize, though, that they're at the razor's edge of this, right? So they're at the razor's edge because their experience of victimization is criminalized. But you can't separate out what has happened to them from other women and girls of color right, who say that they have been raped and that's not taken seriously, where they don't feel confident going to a police department and disclosing that they have been raped because of the perception of who they are as a girl of color or as a woman of color or what happens when there is that disclosure, especially on the part of black and brown women, and the response is that, well, she, she was sexually loose. She was promiscuous, 
she had it coming, right? That's such a, a way that we disregard and normalize the sexual violence done to black and brown women and to black and brown girls. And I think of the, the case that happened here in the city of this girl, this child, right, who was purchased by law enforcement again and again, who was called, right, this girl of color, this child of color, who was not called in the press here a victim of commercial rape or just a victim of rape, a child victim of rape. No, she was called a child prostitute. She was called a teen prostitute. And the conversation of what happened wasn't framed as police misconduct. It was framed as scandal, right? Well, why is it scandal? It's scandal because this child of color is sexually loose. And what she is doing as this teen prostitute with full agency to these adult men, that was the framework. Not that this girl was abused by adults. A child was taken advantage of. A child of color was raped. And that law enforcement acted in the same way of abuse of power as we talk about in the racial justice context. No, that was not the framework. The framework was scandal. And this is the normalization that we have to go up against. This is the way that we systematically and historically disregard the sexual violence done to black and brown girls and women. And until we talk about this in the cultural framework, the laws won't catch up or do what they're supposed to do. Because in the public square, we are still having conversations around these girls as teen prostitutes. We are still not holding accountable the violence done to our girls, especially our black and brown girls. Yeah. Min, what does this routine dehumanization suggest for the types of strategies that the anti-trafficking movement should use? I have a lot, so you'll have to cut me off. Um, Hannah's got the... <laughs> okay, so f just to immediately address the media and, and images. Um, so a few years ago, GEMS in New York, their survivor-run organization, did a campaign called the More Than a Survivor Campaign. And it depicted images of survivors in their full power, as nurses, as students, as actors, in real living color. So we need to have more images. I mean, folks of color and women have been saying this for a long time. We need to have more images of folks like us in the media. But we need to do that in a way that doesn't respond to the victim narrative on the defensive, right? So if the victim narrative is these poor people or these, um, or the sexist and racist narrative is um, these loose girls, then the response isn't pretty pictures of white women who are innocent in preppy clothing. 
right? So we are responding from the defensive, and we're responding to say that the picture of innocent is someone who doesn't have sex and who doesn't care about looking cute. That is not true of probably most people, right? And so what is the vision of a woman in her full power, and how are we promoting that? We need images of freedom and slavery that are, or freedom that are not white doves breaking out of a cage. We need, so all you artists and media people out there, get busy. Okay, NGOs, I wanna talk about the public sector. We need to build survivor leaders so that they're seen in spaces outside of the public sphere. The first survivor that people should meet should not be me, and it should not be me, me, on TV, it should not be me on a newspaper, it should not be me anywhere public, it should be in their communities, through NGOs, through their churches, wherever that is, because in order to change the dehumanization, we have to rehumanize people. So how do we rehumanize people? We talk about them as soccer players, these are all about me. Um, <laughs> we talk about them as singers, we talk about them as runners, we talk about them as actual people, not as I don't have sex and I keep, should keep my legs together. Okay, so the mental health field. Um, to rehumanize people, I think we need to talk about shame. Everyone has shame, and we actually are re-fortifying this all the time. Internalized sexism, internalized racism, at the core there, it's shame, and we need to talk about that and address it. We need to repair our stories and narratives about sexual development. So we've got girls who are having a horrific, kids who are having horrific, I wouldn't even call it sexual development. They're having childhoods stolen. So how do you go through what should be healthy development when you are almost full grown or you are grown, once you're an adult, right? How do you teach people healthy touch? How do you build on the relational aspects of the trauma. We wanna talk about you know, interventions that are housing and food and shelter and all these things, but how do we address the relational trauma, which means you need a long-term relationship with one adult or several adults. We've got turnover in the social work. We've got turnover in mental health professionals, so how do we build long-term relationships? Um, how do we talk about not controlling women and girls' bodies. So you go from, I, my body was dominated by somebody else to a program that says you can't have sex with the same sex partner and you can't have sex, period. That is another form of controlling that kid's body. You can't go from bad control to quote unquote benevolent control. How do we teach healthy self-ownership of our bodies? In the field of parenting and child raising, um, we need to advocate for humanizing policies around maternal leave, paternal leave. We need to talk about um, how parents actually also initiate in the early years this sense of shame or this sense of I don't get to be who I wanna be. We need to talk about the neglect and emotional voids that are left in children such that they go searching for somebody else to love them, right? So for me, all of these strategies are about rehumanizing the survivor. We need the same things as everybody else, right? So a lot of programs will think, okay, well, kids should never have to feed themselves. 
well, normal kids sometimes have to feed themselves, right? Or we should always make them do their homework. Normal kids mess up. Normal kids yell back. Normal kids steal things. You know, all of these, how do we address healthy normal development in a situation that is profoundly not normal? How do we give kids who are eventually going to be provided services by someone who is not their family an experience of family? We don't want to talk about that often. We just want to, we want to talk about like, let's be a helper. Let's do our best and help all these people and save those beautiful little kids. But you're not going to be in their lives forever, right? And so also humanizing children would be involving them in organizing their own communities, involving them in the process of developing the solutions, involve them in determining what goes up on their walls, who they get to talk to, what time they show up at night, all those things. And lastly, <laughs> I think we need to talk about survivors not as just separate. So a lot of humanizing survivors has been for me to talk about, like, you have a daughter, or you've been hurt, or you've been dominated, right? You know what it's like to feel pain. You know what it's like to not have resources. And really get to the core of this is about domination. Because we get in the conversation about sex. This is about sexual violence, this is about sex, 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 sex. Sex is the weapon and domination and wanting somebody else to feel less powerful than you are is, is what people want. That can be putting a gun to someone's head. Sex gets to the core of someone's identity really quickly, but we need to get to why do we feel like dominating another human being? And that's not just in this sex trafficking movement, this is in the world, right? That's why we have racism, that's why we have sexism, is that some group of people needs to feel better than another group of people. So what are ways that we can address domination in our day-to-day -day lives? Thank you. Holly, how did the social acceptance show up in your experience in the human trafficking unit at OPD, and now as a leader of Messi. Yeah. How did the social acceptance show up in your experience at the human trafficking unit at OPD, and now as the leader of Messi? So the social acceptance of trafficking. And wow, assault. yeah. I mean, it, it shows up every day in all of our daily lives and I think that you know we've we've spoke about it and and particularly as women we um, can't turn on the TV uh, without seeing women completely over sexualized and and women's sexuality selling things right I mean you all may remember that there was like I think it was a Carl's Jr. commercial where Jessica Simpson maybe was eating a burger and there's like ketchup dripping down her boobs like you know, that's the country we live in, and so, so we can't go anywhere without women and actually very young girls or women that have the appearance of very, very young girls being over-sexualized and used and commodified for everything in this country. So the police department was, is just a reflection of that, of society, of our society, like I said earlier, that if we're not working specifically every single day, asking ourselves the hard questions about our systems, then they're gonna play out the oppressions that we, we built the country on. Um, one of the ways in which, you know, 
race specifically showed up at the police department really is about what, what Ming was talking about, is really how, how do we decide who's a victim and who's worthy of um, police and, and government attention. And there was a lot of focus on interrogating the victim and was she a worthy enough victim for us to do a call out or for us to do a full-blown investigation or what level of government services is this person deserving of? And that goes again to the law enforcement discretionary discussion is really from um, you know, just even policies that still exist on the books for many law enforcement organizations, but particularly in Oakland, because there's a lot of discretion given to command officers around when a call-out should be initiated just for a missing person or a runaway girl. Um, and so if, if we believe that because of where she's coming from or what she looks like or her history that as law enforcement officers we had access to all of her history, um, whether it's child protective services, child welfare interactions, arrest records, if we paint a picture and determine that she's not a worthy enough victim for us to put all of our full efforts into, those won't happen. Um, and so that's, that's the type of discretion and culture that we're dealing with. It's very, very, very entrenched and um, a recognition of all of our um, biases, you know, including mine. I think that one of my, my biggest awakenings was the recognition that I'm not only, she's giving me the 30, 30 seconds, the recognition that, you know, I'm, I wasn't only within the police department as a black woman from Oakland, I wasn't only a witness or a victim of, uh, of oppression and, and racism and gender bias, but at certain times I was a participant, right? I mean, and that's our, that's our own internalized oppression and recognizing that, and, and that was a huge awakening for me. And that was the turning point where I was able to start using my positions of power and my positions of access as a black woman inside of an organization that historically neglected the communities that I came from. And I think that that's something, a strategy that we all really need to focus on is really recognizing our own participation because at any moment within systems and society we're witnesses, victims, or, or participants. Thank you. District Attorney O'Malley and Judge B.E., you are leaders in public systems. Judge B.E., how does this acceptance of violence against girls show up in your work? It shows up in many of the ways that my peers here have already talked about. It shows up when I'm having a dialogue with one of my girls and they've internalized what is so pervasive in movies, in video games, in music. It shows up when I have a parent who's seated next to her and wants to talk about, well, I hope you learned your lesson and you need to stop making these choices. You did this to yourself. So sort of that acceptance or co-signing by a parent, it is as noted, showing up when there are some courtrooms where I will have or you will see or you will hear about a deputy, right? A sheriff's deputy or a police officer who will make comments to one another, to another peer, that persons, that the girls that I hear. When you have advocates who come in and they use terms like, 
my client here, so she's a prostitute, and this is what we need to do, and we want to be in your specialized court. So for me, it shows up too often, unfortunately, sometimes in the professionals who are supposed to be committed and trained and sensitive in the courtroom. Um, so it can be very difficult in terms of pushing back because the very people who are supposed to have trauma-informed training and be sensitive to their experiences and understand this is very intentionally a different courtroom working in a different way, don't have that ability or, or that discernment. One of the ways, I think, for me in terms of personal ownership and what we do, um, by virtue of my title, you all know that my job from eight to five is to apply facts to the law and render a decision to judge. Um, many of you may not know that there are all also very specific statutes, ethical canons, standards of judicial administration that say a juvenile court judge is responsible for working with and across systems and community providers to identify the services and processes that serve our communities, our youth, our families that are at risk of entering the juvenile court, whether that be child welfare or juvenile justice. As the presiding judge of the juvenile court, I have also taken the position in personal ownership that I have not only the opportunity but the obligation to do something different to be intentional with my work and with my kids, because they're all my kids, in a very different way. And so when we talk about, and some of you have talked about the movement, judges are not advocates. Juvenile court judges are a little different in our very unique and specific guidance and directives. Um, I am fortunate to have peers across this state, including my counterpart for this county, who's in the room tonight, uh, to be working in a very intentional way to recognize biases across the spectrum, to not further blame or shame, but to provide a space where we can come together, have these conversations, and work with our youth in a way that isn't re-traumatizing, that isn't adding to the harm, um, and that recognizes and highlights and lifts up their individuality, not only where they're at, but where they're going, and in a way that is not further labeling. Um, and I add the piece about not further labeling, and I've talked with some of you in the room about it. My dedicated calendar is just a dedicated calendar. I have chosen not to have a fancy name. It's not the CSEC court, it's not the girls court, no disrespect to anybody who has one of those. But for me, it's a function of, I don't need that youth to hear that she's going to the CSEC calendar. I don't need a young man who has been exploited to hear, oh, well, you're going to the girls' court. What's that about? I don't need a transgender youth to have further confusion or harassment because of a labeled court. It's frustrating for some, but for me, it's about the work we're doing and not the title or the label or who we are in our positions, but what we're able to do in coming together to better serve our youth. <laughs> Nancy. To follow uh, the judge because uh, we have girls court and I looked at the title of our girls court as empowering. Like this is your place. So it's very interesting to hear a different perspective about it. And I think that part of that is 
uh, that we, we have to remember that each person is an individual and their perspective will be, some may say, you know, boys, why am I going to girls' court? Or I'm only going to that special court because I have special problems. And some may say, wow, this is my place where I get to be just with my own gender. So it, it's interesting, but it's also, uh, for me, interesting to note, those are, that's the mindfulness and the purposefulness with which we have to operate yeah. when we're working in this field. Because what might come off as a, the, the, the internal in, interpretation can be very different from one to the other. Um, and the other thing is I just want to really compliment Holly because um, you know, she's, she's modest in the impact she's had on the Oakland Police Department. This is a different Oakland Police Department than when Holly was there. In spite of the fact that I'm prosecuting six cops from there, there are 700 police officers in Oakland and six are being prosecuted. And I gotta tell you that the first call I got was from the president of the, of the Police Officers Association saying, go for it. We do not, we, we condemn what they did. And I've heard that from police all over the place. So the impact of someone like Holly, and particularly Holly in Oakland, has been great. Um, and, and so how this shows that. <laughs> so how this shows up, this issue shows up, is across this country, less than 3% of sexual assault cases ever see a courtroom. Less than 3% ever see a courtroom. And for those cases where, the, and, and there's, there are barriers that exist in this country for people that are in positions like I am of making judgments before that case gets to move forward or not. And there are, you know, police and medical and the interaction with first responders, and I don't mean the police necessarily. How, when they went to the hospital, did someone look at them like they were dirty or they brought it on themselves and all of those things that we've been talking about that factor into like uh, the victim survivor thinking that somehow she owns part of the victimization. So those barriers uh, stop cases from ever getting to us. And that is across the board. We look at campus sexual assault crimes. So few ever get even reported to the police until we had to pass the federal laws to tell the school administrators this, you cannot handle this in the back room, by yourself, nobody knows. Victims that have, been, that have been assaulted on campus, many of them never even know whatever happened to that administrative hearing because the rights were not there. So, so we, I'll tell you, this county is very progressive and I can talk about all of these things across the country. It's different here and I'm proud to say that we're part of that different uh, that difference, we, we do prosecute sexual assault cases. As Stacy said at the beginning, that the barriers that other offices across this country might use to not move a case into the courtroom, we don't see them as barriers. We see them as factors in why this child was raped or why this perpetrator picked that person. So we've prosecuted over almost, five, almost 560 human trafficking cases in this county with 82% of those people being convicted. That's more than the rest of the state combined. And where, where I know that we have, to, we, we have to and we do look at these issues with balance, we also recognize that victimization and perpetration. And part of the job where it shows up for me and my staff 
is when we go into court to pick juries because they're watching those TV shows, they're playing Grand Theft Auto, they're looking at pornography that's everywhere, and so their attitudes come into the courtroom already ready to judge the victim. So we build the laws to protect victim survivors in the courtroom of human trafficking, sexual assault. We've brought legislation in the court so that uh, a victim survivor, a child who's been raped and trafficked, doesn't even have to be in the courtroom. We put a television set at the witness stand, and they're in another room testifying. We are able to have a hearing before we ever get to the jury and record it so that recording is played for the jury. So how that plays out, this issue of, of uh, gender and all of the things we've been talking about, is that my job, our job, is to make sure that that's a courtroom that, that administers justice fairly and in a balanced way, but protecting the rights of both the offender or the accused and the person who's been victimized, and then educating jurors about the reality that we live in so that when they sit in judgment of whether or not this person committed a crime or that person is a victim of crime, they're coming from a, pers from a more educated, informed perspective. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about West Coast Children's Clinic, visit www.westcoastcc.org.